0: Human psychology is such that when a person wants to justify inappropriate behavior, they'll use the most radical rationalizations to defend their position. At the end of our parasha, when we have the dramatic moment that Zimri Takes, he's the head of the tribe of Shimon, and he takes Cosby, who's a Midianite princess, and they have this fling in front of everybody, he accuses Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, don't tell me that I can't have such a woman, considering that you married somebody who came from Midian. Now, the truth is, it seems such an unfounded accusation. Why is there no strong pushback to say, you don't know what you're talking about? But again, I in regards to the story recorded at the end of our parasha which is Veina Ishmebley Solob, there was a man from Israel who came, via Kravel Khav Samidyonis, and he brought in front of his brothers a Midianite woman, Lena Moisha go in front of Moisha everybody. Yes, the Hazal, Hazal tells us, that Zimri ben Solu, that Zimri who was the head of the tribe of Shim in Havia Samidyonis, caused me bastur, he brought this Midianite princess, the name Moisha Benu put her in front of Moshe HaBeinu and he had the following accusation. Zoi Asura Oimu Is this woman permitted to me, or forbidden? Asura, if you're going to claim that she's forbidden, then bas Yisroi me tira who gave you permission to marry the daughter of Yisroy, who's also from Midian. And the Chazal tell us that at that point, nis'alma mimenu mi Moshe HaLocha. At that moment, Moshe went blank for a moment, and he didn't. Remember the halokha of how you deal with such a person in such a situation. (inaudible) (inaudible) Pinchas saw what was going on, remembered the halocha, which is (inaudible) that if somebody has a public fling with a non-Jewish woman, he had this kutis, other versions say aramis, that uh, such a person, whoever feels so passionately for Hashem's cause, is permitted to kill them. And (inaudible) Pinchas did so. Now, Now, apparently Zimri has a decent question. If he's not allowed to marry a Midianus, how come Moisha could? So my boy Rashi, Rashi gives a simple explanation. That Moisha got married before the Torah was given. And therefore, when the Torah was given, the entire nation, every single Jewish person, technically was considered a Ben Noyach. And then, and then all of them collectively became under and then all of them collectively became under the banner of Judaism and the commitment to mitzvahs. In other words, they became Jewish, and Sephora joined with everybody else. In other words, Vahainu, Shemoy Shanase, Sephora came and she's always going to show you, and then you're going to show you. How could Moshe marry Tzipora? Because technically, before Harasina, Moshe and Tzipora were both technically in the category of Bnei Noach. And subsequently, at the time of the giving of the Torah, Tzipora converted to Judaism in exactly the same way as everybody else did. And that would be the simplest explanation Rashi gives us why she was somebody Moshe was allowed to marry. Simple, right? Simple enough, surely that Zimri should have known it. Venu movement makes no sense. Hallo Zimri Oyonesipes of Lashimoini. Zimri may have gotten mired in a in a very bad relationship, but but he was no idiot. He was the leader of the tribe of Shimri so why did he have a complaint in the first place if you're going to say that I may not marry this Midianis who allowed you to marry Zipporah the daughter of Yisroi did he not know the simplest distinction the difference between marriage as it was before and after Matan he was no fool he knew the answer surely to his own question or, from the other angle, let's say there's some explanation, even just a suggestion, let's say there's some reason that Zimro you would have thought of why it is that this is not a sufficient explanation to defend Moshe Rabbeinu's choice of wife. So, I die in kosher. Still have a question. The other way. Why does the Gemara not record any response from either Moshe or any other person against Zimri's argument? Let's say Zimri had a point. Why does nobody reply to it? Even Pinchas, who did respond, who's the great hero of the story, doesn't counter Zimri's argument. He only remembers the halach of how to deal with Zimri's behavior. So, why is nobody addressing the issue? Either it's no, not an issue, in which case Zimri was stupid to have raised it, or if Zimri had a reason to, to raise it, why is nobody addressing it? So, yes, some try to explain that it's that response that there's a fundamental difference between marriage as it was before and after Matan Torah. That's what Nis'alma mi Moshe, that's what Moshe couldn't recall in the heat of the moment. That's how someone who explained it, I think we'll all agree that's a very difficult explanation to accept. Because Avonosef Azzeh, in addition to the fact that Asher Aleph, number one, Kosev, Rashi Befeirosh, Rashi clearly writes, Alma mi Menu which Halacha did Moshe temporarily forget. The halacha he was taught at Har Sinai with regards to a Jewish man who has a fling with a non-Jewish woman. So Mimenu. is pretty clear that the only halacha Moshe temporarily forgot is the halacha of how to deal with Zimri. Number two base, Doicha Goldoloymar. It's a very difficult explanation to try and convince us with that Shinisalami Moshe Poshit Kol Kachkenal. That Moshe would forget such a simple distinction, life before and after Matantara. But besides those two technical points, it's also not really clear. How could Zimri ask such a question in the first place? <inaudible> what Did Zimri calculate Moshe's going to forget the halacha He's going to forget the distinction Between before and after mat-terra. Therefore I could ask the question How could he have known that would ever happen So we can't say That this is the halacha Moshe forgot And we still have to understand How Zimri could have approached Moshe With what appears to be such an obvious Mistaken perspective and why does nobody respond to it? In addition to that, there's another halachic question, which Zimri did not raise, but appears to be relevant to Moshe Rabbein. We all know full well, That there's a woman who converts to Judaism may never marry a koin. That's not rabbinic, that is a Torah-based Yisra. Even though Omnambi Gimori alfinikrobi Yheskil, even though the Gemara derives it from the wording of Apasuk and Yekeskel, Samcha Kro'i. That's only to give it the, the full validity of a Pasuk. Viluho is moyumatora, but the, the foundation of the prohibition against the Khoya marrying is in the Torah because the Torah tells us we Mashanmo and Prashus Emor, Isha Zoino Gomelo Yukohu that a koin may not marry a woman who had been in an illicit relationship beforehand. And lefi shaboh, bezima, because unfortunately the nature of the, the nations of the world is that they are not the same morals we have in, in the Jewish world, and so women are exposed to things before marriage that would not be acceptable in the Jewish world, therefore Aguirre is not allowed to marry a koin. Now, v'hinei Gemara, when it, the Gemara discusses in Zvochim, that there's a bit of a debate, but again on Moshe Abeinu with regards to Moshe. the according to one opinion, Moshe Abeinu Koyen Gadol, Moshe had the status of a Koyen Gadol, and even when Aaron took over the actual running of that position, Moshe retained the status. poska, zar because all we find is that Moshe's children and grandchildren were no longer kohanim but not that Moshe lost the status. So that's one opinion in the Gemara. There's another opinion in the Gemara that says that Moshe was in the position of a Kohen, specifically Kohen Gadol, for the seven days of initiating the Mishkan into service. If so, we have a big question, which is possibly even a bigger question than what Zimri was asking. How could Moshe, who had the status of a Kohen, marry Yisro's daughter, who has the status of a gioris. So, Ali, belemand Amor. If you go with the opinion that says Lani Skai then Moishel was only technically a kohen for the seven days of initiating the Mishkan. Okay, we could squeeze out an answer and say because it was a temporary position, Even when he was in the position, he wasn't a hundred percent kohen like a normal kohen and the fact that he was permitted to bring Carbonis is because how is a like explains Nefisha that during those seven days of preparing and initiating the Mishkan, Mishkan Din Bomber. The Mishkan was not yet a fully fledged temple of service to Hashem, rather it still had the status of a bomber, which is not as holy as the Mishkan would be. And therefore, it was more flexible in terms of who could bring the korbonos. And that's why the uniform that Moshe Rabbeinu used while he was doing the service in the Mishkan during that week was not Big Dekhunna. Beloibe Big de was this white garment that he wore. Because that in itself tells us that it was like a bomber, and there is no concept of a coyote wearing special clothing to serve Hashem at a bummer. And therefore, you could say, well, he wasn't a proper, fully fledged kohen, so maybe he was allowed to marry a So there would be a squeezed answer. So besides the fact the language of the Gemara is which implies that even for those seven days, Moshe was a fully fledged kohen. Besides that, there is still another opinion over there in the Gemara that says Moshe retained the status of a queen for the rest of his life. So back to square one, how could he marry a Gioris? So perhaps the answer to the one question will solve for the other question. Maybe that's the answer. These two questions. How come nobody defends Moshe Abeinu against Zimri's argument? How did Zimri even have such a weird argument in the first place? And the question of how Moshe could marry a as being a Kohen, maybe Sachas Maybe one answers the other. Maybe. How would we say that? So let's say maybe Kavona Zimri so Maybe what Zimri really was arguing against Moshe Rabbeinu was Bas mi who allows you, Moshe Rabbeinu, to marry the daughter of Yisro, who is a Medyonis. Maybe Maybe Zimri's issue was not how could you marry a Medyonis, because he knows that's not okay, but how could you marry a Geirus la'koyin? I. Surely the whole reason that Zimri brought this up Was to try to defend his relationship with the Midianis So how would this help his cause? So what would the link be between Moshe marrying a Gioris And therefore Zimri defending himself Having a relationship with the Midianis If you say, my woman is forbidden to me How come your woman is permitted to you? The link would be as follows because, as we already mentioned, why should a kohen not marry a the because her heritage is from non-Jews, haramim, who are particularly exposed and pre- predisposed to immorality. And therefore, so therefore, Zimri would say, Oh, you don't want me to be with this cosby, the Midionis woman, because they're so immoral. How could you, Moshe, who actually has greater status than me, because you're a kohen? how could you be with a woman from similar background? Okay, so maybe that's where Zimri was coming from. But the Rebbe says that's not actually a good explanation because it still leaves us with a nagging question. As we already asked previously, if Zimri did in fact have a good question against Moshe, why is nobody answering his question or responding to his question? And most importantly, why does nobody say it to Zimri? So it's not recorded in any, in any Safer and it's not recorded as a response to Zimri, how is that possible? Let's try another angle, a very interesting angle. Maybe Moshe's response should have been, who says we're married? Maybe the answer could rely on something the Chazal teach us, that there were three decisions Moshe made independently, and were later ratified by Hashem. One of the three is mehem no that he separated from zippora. If he separated from zippora, then zimri has no leg to stand on, saying, "Who allows you to be with the daughter of yisrael?" You say, "I'm not with the daughter of yisrael." You worried that she's a convert and I'm a kohen. Why say we're no longer together? Ah, one second separation is actually insufficient. You need more than that. It's not enough for a and his divorcee wife to separate to overcome the prohibition that they had transgressed. But Rashi has already addressed this at the end of the with a famous moment where Miriam is critical of Moshe for separating from his wife. But the dab Miriam, Gomer the Pasek says that Miriam spoke to Aaron, <speaking in Hebrew> that he, she spoke to Aaron about the Kushis woman that Moshe had married, says Rashi, <speaking in Hebrew> what was it that Miriam raised about Moshe? <speaking in Hebrew> the fact that Moshe had divorced <speaking in> her. <Hebrew> Rashi says, because he had originally married this unique woman, is considered as unique in her greatness and spiritual beauty as the black woman would be in her in her pigmentation now he has divorced her divorce is the word Rashi takes the view that they didn't simply separate there was an Alachic status that of divorce. So Zimri, who are you? What are you complaining to Moshe Rabbeinu about? They're not together. And even though that might be a viable answer, we don't find a record that this was the response to Zimri. Zimri says, who allows you to be with the daughter of Yisroi? And nobody replies, oh, they're not together, they're divorced. Why not? Because nobody knew. (laughs) <laughs> Chazal points out that nobody was aware of the fact that they had divorced, because he has the clearest proof. I feel like Miriam, even Miriam is part of the family, the older sister who had been so protective over Moshe when he was young, and therefore had a unique relationship with him. She only becomes aware of the fact that they had divorced because of what Zipporah says, when she hears that are two new prophets on the block, Eldad and Meadad, then Amrat Sipura says in response, I feel bad for their wives because they're also going to lose their husbands like I lost, lost my husband. First time Miriam hears about it. Why did nobody know? To Kevin, because Moshe independently chose to divorce. As we know from that same parish, Moshe was the humblest person in history. She didn't want anybody to know that he had made such a choice. For the same reason, he's not now going to defend himself by telling Zimri, we're divorced. Maybe it would make Zipari uncomfortable. Maybe it would be too much of his own accolades. So he keeps quiet. So maybe that's what happened over here. Moisha has a great response to Zimri. He just doesn't say it because he's not in the business of self-promotion. But that explanation is also not good enough. Sheharei. For the following reasons: Number one, Rashi's take on why it is that Moshe Rabbeinu separated from Zipporah, which he bases on the Sifri, is Rashi goes with the view that there wasn't an independent, voluntary choice that Moshe Rabbeinu made. Rashi writes that when the Abishra rebukes Miriam and Aaron. In the rebuke, he says, I told him to separate from his wife. Because I told him, when everybody else had to go back after Matan Torah to their families, I, Hashem says, told him to remain here with me, away from his wife. And it would not be a problem for somebody who wants to be humble to say that they've done what Hashem says. But besides that, beyond a much more fundamental issue with regards to our conversation. The reason that Moshe divorced Tzipora had nothing to do with her background and being a (inaudible) geirus. It's very clear that the reason they divorced was because of his responsibilities and the level of holiness he had as a navi. (inaudible) As Rashi quotes from the Sifri, (inaudible) what did Tzipora say about Eldad and Medad? Woe to their wives If they're going to be in the world of Nevoah now and They're going to abandon their wives Nothing to do with whether the wives came from Midian or not and We're trying to find an explanation to say That actually Moshe had to divorce Zipporah Because he's a Kohen, she's a Gioros we don't find that in the story anyway. So we're really back to square one. How does Zimri have an issue with the fact that Moshe Abedinu married a Midianis before Matan Torah? How come Moshe doesn't respond? And Tucker, how was Moshe allowed to be married to a Gioris if he has the status of a Koyen? At least according to one view. How would that one view explain this? So the answer is going to be built on the concept of when they get married. Rabiru Isa Mishnah, Mishnah tells us, Koin Salmon. Let's say you have a regular kohen who makes a betrothal, which is more than an engagement. So he betroths a woman who's a widow, completely permissible. After that happens, when he now he is promoted and he becomes the Koin godal, who is not allowed to marry a widow. Says the Mishnah, Yichnois they go ahead and have the chuppah and everything's good. Why of a Gemara, Bora so the Gemara explains the, the root, the, the both, both, the logical and the verse that, that tells us this. The Possek speaks about taking a woman, in other words, because the moment where he took her as a wife, which is the betrothal, at that time it was a perfectly legal move. He was allowed, he was a regular coin he was allowed to marry a, devil, uh, uh, a widow. He's allowed to consummate, to conclude that process, even though now his status has changed. And by rights, he would never have been allowed to initiate this kind of a marriage with his current status as a coin gadol. But because the le'kicha, the first Halachically viable step called Erosin occurred when he was permitted to make an Erosin betrothal to her, we're all good. Now, if that's true of the Kohen who's betrothed to a widow and then gets upgraded to the Kohen Gadol, how much more would the same logic apply to our scenario with Moshe and Zipporah? In Moshe and Zippor's case, it's not only that the first stage of the nuptials was legal. And the full marriage was legal. It was all before matan So then for sure, if later Moshe is now promoted to become a kohen years after he married Zipporah, obviously there's no issue now with their marriage. The kohen came after the marriage. Now you might ask the that there might be a technical problem with this answer, which is all the legalities were taken care of before the Koyen issue came into the mix. Maybe you'd ask this question. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu married Zipporah legally. We all agree that occurred before Matan In fact, quite a long time before Matan but the truth is, every single Jewish couple prior to Matan were technically married as B'nai Noyach. They didn't have a Jewish marriage. Surely then, the halachic parameters of what you and I consider marriage weren't yet available for anybody to use. So surely we have to insist. Surely everybody had to renew their vows, had to recommit to marriage after Matan Torah according to a legally acceptable model of Torah. And if that's the case, we're back to square one. How could Moshe now after Matan Torah, when everybody else apparently had to remarry their wives with Chupa and kiddushin, Moshe should have done the same for Tziporah? but he can't because he's a kohen. So how did they get to be married? You'd think it's a question of Obama saying Zikusha. It's actually not a big question because, okay, there's two ways that we're going to address it. Number one, firstly, you can well imagine that if it was going to be required for everybody to renew their marriage straight after Matan they would have done it straight after Matan and that would mean. There's still some time from Matan Torah till the Mishkan is put up, till we have the seven days of initiating the Mishkan, and it's only then that Moshe would be a, would become a kohen. So he's got enough time to marry Zipporah again, halachically compliant, and not yet be a kohen. But even if you want to go with that view that says that Moshe was not just a kohen for seven days, but Moshe was a kohen fundamentally. And therefore, and he became a Kohen actually from the time of Matan Torah and onwards. It's also not such a big question. Okay, as will explain. We built this question on the premise that the concept of Lekicha, halachically compliant marriage, was non existent before the Torah was given. We're about to discover that's not actually the case. We know the very famous possek about Moshe Rabbeinu's parents, that a man from the house of Levi, otherwise known as Amram, approached a woman who was a daughter of Levi, otherwise known as Yochavet, and they remarried. The Gemara tells us that they did the process that you and I would identify as a lachikli-compliant marriage. In other words, the Gemara identifies that the means of marriage that Amram used in order to marry Yocheved was that kind of marriage which was actually fully introduced after the giving of the Torah. By the way, parenthetically, If I said, this is a way to explain what the Rambam says over Mitzrayim, that Amram, remember when, the, when he tells us, the Rambam tells us about basically the Shev Mitzvah. and how different Mitzvahs manifested at different times before Matan Torah. So he says that Amram was given additional Mitzvahs um, when he was in Mitzrayim. And we don't know what those Mitzvahs were. Where do you find any evidence in the Torah that Amram was given any Mitzvahs to do? So the point out that they say, here it is. It's this mitzvah of Chupavikidushin, which Amram was given in Mitzrayim and therefore predates Matan Torah. So there was actually a valid means of marriage even before the Torah was given. Therefore, it's now clear that the format and the ritual of weddings as we know it already pre-existed before Matan Torah Any couple who married using that format prior to giving the Torah retained the validity of their marriage after Matan Torah, and they did not need a new marriage. Therefore, Moshe did not need to remarry Tziporah. Therefore, when they originally got married, before Matan Torah, there was no problem with their marriage, because it was all in the status of Ben Noach, meaning there was no restriction on who you could or couldn't marry. Which makes it then obvious, Moshe Rabbeinu married Tzipura in a way that was legally binding, according to Torah, Torah, because it was prior to Matan Torah no restriction on Midianite women and he did not have to remarry her after Matan Torah and therefore all of the questions fall away it doesn't make a difference that later on he becomes a kohen, and it turns out retrospectively that she was a gioris. that's fine because the marriage happened appropriately in the first place and therefore actually Zimri has no, no basis to his argument who allowed you to marry her because of course they were allowed so now we can get back into Zimri's head what was Zimri on about when he said who allowed you to marry the daughter of Yisroi a Midyoni man and we also understand just as importantly maybe even more importantly why Moshe did not feel the need to respond to Zimri's argument See, Zimri has a big problem beyond his shenanigans with a Midianite woman. Zimri rejected the element of Torah that says, The halachic status of real marriage predates Matan Torah. It says, not written anywhere in the Torah. Therefore, in his skewed perspective on how Torah works, his refusal to accept Torah Shabalpeh, in his mind, Moshe has to divorce Torah in the same way as he expects him to ditch Cosby. Now, Moshe couldn't respond to that for an intriguing reason. Moshe couldn't say, yeah, but we have a Kabbalah of Torah Shabalpeh. Let me explain to you how it works. This is how you interpret the Pasuk because there's an interesting aloha that says that if a Talmud is going to introduce an halachic perspective that people don't know in a case that is personally relevant we cannot expect or accept that that sage is going to say this is the tradition I was taught because we're going to say that's convenient, it suits you and seeing as Moshe was personally related to this case, obviously because the whole argument was a direct attack on Moshe Rabbeinu, who allowed you to marry this woman, so he's not in a position to say, "But I have a tradition of Toyosha Balpa that supports my view we find a similar thing when Moshe goes head to head goes head to head with Moshe. Besides the fact that Korach was very upset at the fact that Aaron is the Koyan, and he wanted to be the Koyan Gadol, He also came with a whole lot of halachic questions, which really had no basis, but he turned them into a big deal. First, the one about mezuzah. If you have a house that's full of Sifre Torah, would it really need a mezuzah? I'm going to get a Tcheles. And a similar question with regards to Tcheles and a Talus. If the entire garment is dyed the color of Tcheles, so is it really necessary to also have Tzitzis on the corners of that garment? And now, in both those cases, Moshe Abeni doesn't respond to him with proofs from Balpe. Ki Imrak she Moshe Abenu just gives him a very strong response, which is, Hashem what if I'm right? hashem's going to open up the earth basically and swallow you up. But Canal, for the same reason, because Moshe was a litigant in the argument that Kariach brought. And therefore, even if he would quote a viable explanation from Tehosh Valpeh, we could not accept it because he is personally involved. Now that teaches us a very powerful lesson. Not every situation requires a response to a question that is posed. because Sometimes the only reason a person asks a question is to create an irrational basis for an inappropriate behavior. To marry a midionist. He wants us to give him the green light for his midionist. If a person has good intentions for the sake of heaven, Hazai then, as Shlomo says, Sometimes you even have to answer a fool on his terms. But when a person asks a question because they want to find the excuse to allow what the Torah forbids, Then you use the other teaching of Shlomo HaMelech. Don't respond to a fool on his terms. When somebody has a personal agenda against Torah, you don't respond successfully with explanations. You stand firmly with a response that doesn't have to be explained. And as much as that's relevant to the people out there, it's relevant to the voice inside us. Like that famous, foolish, old king that lives inside of us. But he tries to confuse and mislead us. Then we have to avoid getting into negotiations. And I take a philosophy. We've got to stand firm. And do something with power, the Gemara says, drag him into the yeshiva. Don't enter into negotiations. And that's pretty much how Pinchas responded. With with kino, with vengeance. He didn't get into an argument, a debate with Zibri. Because actually the halacha is that once you start the conversation around how to deal with this particular case, we don't tell you what to do. But he took up Hashem's cause with absolute passion. Zimri And put his life on the line to kill Zimri. Because as we well know, if Zimri had defended himself and killed Pinchas, he would have been within his rights. Now, Chag Hagulah Yudbeis Yudimot Tamos Chal Beroy VeAshanim VeShavuot the Parashas Balak. Most years Yudbeis Tamos is in the week of Balak. Olinyan Anali Ashna Sheichus LeChag Hagulah. There's a direct link between what we've just learned about standing firm and not negotiating when there's a force trying to intervene with what Hashem wants, and the story of Yudbeis Tamos. Anagosa Shachak Mecha Admur Balagulav Asimich Ahoyso. The conduct of the Frida Kereba, whose celebration this is. Was in a way, it was like pinchas, absolute passion to defend Hashem's position without restraint, without negotiation. With complete disregard for various people and their logical or perhaps not so logical arguments. Because people said, You don't have to risk your life for every little bit of Judaism. Therefore, he stood up with absolute passion and dedication for the Abishter's honor, for the Abish's cause. His attitude was, this is Hashem's business. Maintaining and spreading and growing Judaism is Hashem's business. Therefore. Therefore he had complete. Dedication to the point of personal sacrifice in a practical way and in an ongoing fashion. Very often people have a momentary experience of dedicating the sacrificing the life for Hashem. He did it ongoing. Now, this concept of having complete mysterious nefesh for Hashem's business could apply in two different ways. Or two of the various ways. Kibbe parasha could play out like in our parasha nasi ador, where the person is the protagonist who stands up with that mysterious nephesh is not the nasi ador, it's not Moisha Rabbeinu. Shari Moisha. How does Pinchas do it? With tremendous power and strength and, and harshness, actually. That's why we find that Pinchas, who later returns as a nabi Amar. Kanoi Kin Asi Rashemrak's voice gamer, that he stands up with this kanos with a s- sort of single-minded focus, that doesn't necessarily even look to defend the Yidin at times. That's one way. A harsh Messiris Nefesh. Fighting the battle. A second way is, The way it played out with the Fidu who stood up for Hashem's honor, but he did it himself, the Nasi hadur in action himself. Of M S F Shalom, the truth is, we could even explain Shagametz Eitz Pinchas. The fact that Pinchas had the wherewithal, the strength, to do what he did, which was so courageous and risky, he was facilitated. He was empowered with the with the ability to do this because of his connection to the Nasi Hadar. Shomar, because the Nasi Adur Moshe said to him, the person who reads the letter should act on it. Pinchas, that empowered and emboldened Pinchas to be able to stand up for Hashem's honor. But when the Nasi Adur himself does it, then it happens in a gentle manner. Has been told and retold. That the Fidduch asked of his father, He asked that his leadership should be in a compassionate and gentle fashion. And the great insight and innovation from his perspective is, that even when we have to stand unwavering with absolute dedication, no correspondence will be entered into for Hashem's business, it could still be effective in a way of Like somebody who has a good eye Who receives bracha for what they do Where our impact on the world Is with kindness, with gentleness And with compassion And mitzvah Hashem, We should have that dedication And go to the Gula Shlema B'Chesed U'V'Racham